Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. I am Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. And this is our sixth episode. Oh, is it? I believe so. Oh, okay, cool. If not, we'll have Camden put over top of it uh, someone saying five. We've right made it there. this far without getting canceled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's our sixth episode. And uh, last week we talked about the enemy from within, looking at how the church and its early. Uh, stage was being attacked both by the outside and from the inside. And last week we focused mainly uh, to prepare ourselves to get ready for inside attacks, which are heresies. So we're going to begin walking through some of those heresies in this episode. Charles, what heresy is on our plate today? Oh, it's a big one. Uh, it, it's actually there are actually two heresies that kind of bleed into one another. Okay. Um, so we'll talk about them collectively because they basically have the same fundamental problem. But it's uh, the, that of Ebionism and what ultimately comes to be known as adoptionism. Adoptionism. Yeah. So we'll just call it adoptionism. Um, but yeah. Okay. So is that the heresy of just adopting? We're not supposed to adopt. Yeah, yeah. We're supposed if, to be if fruitful and multiply. If, yeah, you uh, reject the adoption of puppies. <laughs> uh, no, no. Um, basically, what's going on? You know, just kind of provide a little bit of historical context. One of because uh, this is a church history podcast, so I guess we should have that for a little bit as That's our discussion. True. Uh, you know, one of the things to remember is the big. One of the big governing questions of the first six centuries is what is the relationship of Jesus. To the Father, um, and it's the, the the that question is going to be addressed from many different perspectives by several different groups of people uh, for the first six centuries. Um, this issue emerges um, almost right away. One of the things that um, we need to realize, just to kind of bring some continuity with some of the other uh, themes that we've talked about, is just keeping in mind that Christianity emerges from under the broad umbrella of Judaism. Okay. Um, you see that clearly in the New Testament. We spent a couple weeks talking about that uh, very early on. Um, and so one of the early major questions is, what's the relationship of the continuity between the covenants, mm. the covenant administrations, the question of continuity and discontinuity? Um, we, we see this clearly in Acts 15, mm. whether or not Christians are obligated to keep to the Mosaic law. Should their right. children be circumcised to be part of the covenant? Uh, should they be required to obey the Sabbath? That's from Friday to Saturday. Should they be required to you know, keep the same food laws? Right. And that's a major thing we see in the first half of the book of Acts and also in Paul's letter uh, to the church of Galatia. Hmm. Um, we kind of look at it from the perspective of, okay, well, that— that gets kind of stamped out right away, at least when you read the New Testament letters of, of Acts, that it's rejected. You know, Christians are not obligated to, to circumcise their children. Mm. Um, they are not obligated to keep the dietary laws. Mm. But the fact is, historically speaking, that there are some groups who continue to do that, namely ethnically Jewish Christians. Right, okay. Now, uh, as Christianity develops, more and more Christians uh, are coming from non-Jewish backgrounds. And that's clear in the second half of Acts. Right. That, you know, the gospel is being proclaimed to the nations. Um, but there is this kind of transition period, end of the first century, beginning of the second century, where you're having ethnically Jewish people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah to one degree or another. Um, and so th this is kind of where this early heresy emerges. It kind of starts there and kind of balloons out a little bit. Um, 
as we said, um, there there were some some Jewish ethnically Jewish Christians who who stayed in Jerusalem and who maintained keeping the Mosaic tradition. Okay, they still circumcised their children. They still kept the dietary laws. All those things. Um, eventually, they started referring to themselves as the Ebionites. Mm. So word just means the poor. Um, probably the, the association with you know wanting to be associated with the the the, the meek and the lowly okay. things of that sort. But what seems is after, um, of course, the uh, as we talked about. A couple episodes ago, with the the onset of the Jewish War in AD seventy, you kind of see the split between Judaism and Christianity as a formal social break. Right. What well, kind of leaves this this middle ground, or you know, this no man's land for these guys who are still ethnically Jewish, but still wanting to maintain, you know, that Jesus is the Messiah to some degree or fashion, mm. you know, some shape or form. Uh, what we see happen is there's another attempted Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire in 135. It's known as the Bar Kokhba revolt. It runs from 132 to 135. At the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt, all the Jews are expelled from the city. All of them. Wow. Um, in fact, the city of Jerusalem is, is renamed Aeolia Capitolina. Um, mm. And uh, I, I think it's not until the 4th century that Jews are, are allowed to return to, to Jerusalem. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, I guess you don't have to since this is being recorded. <laughs> but... Uh, Quote, unquote, unquote. Quote, quote unquote, 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 <laughs> disquote. Uh, but what we do see is that those those remaining Jewish Christians are kind of scattered throughout, usually in these small towns throughout Syria. That's where Ebionism is kind of seen as being pre- predominant. Not as if they're the majority of the population, but that's it's concentrating these small Syrian towns outside of Jerusalem. Um, and anyways, sorry, I, I got kind of distracted. Their focus is on how you are to be justified. Okay. And th- their emphasis ends up being that your justification – again, this is a question of continuity between the, the, the covenant administrations. Mm. Um, Jesus is seen as the perfect law keeper. Right. But it's not a, a vicarious law keeping on behalf of humanity. Rather, he, he's a, he becomes a good example. Mm. Uh, some of the things that, that the Abbey and I believe is um, – that there is a validity to maintaining the Old Testament law, uh, okay. the Mosaic administration. So they want this strict continuity between the Mosaic epoch of redemptive history, you know, into this new time with you know uh, the, the coming of the Messiah. Okay. But in doing that, it required they rejected the Pauline epistles, which they clearly did. They ended mm. up re- rejecting Paul's epistles as, as being canonical. What they did accept were the uh, the Gospel of Matthew and the Epistle of James. At least we don't really know the full mm. contours of all all the. Uh, canonical books they accepted, but it seems pretty clear um, that at the very least they had accepted Matthew and James and rejected Paul. Hmm. Um, they become divided over certain issues, uh, namely the question of the virgin birth and the resurrection. Some Ebionites would claim that Jesus was raised. Some would claim that he was not. Some would claim that he was born of a virgin. Some would claim that he was not. So we don't want to think of the Ebionites as like a like a denomination like we think of today. It's kind of like a loose association of ethnically Jewish people who claim who still want to claim that Jesus is the Messiah, again, to one degree or another. Um, but what all Ebionites did deny was they denied the uh, divine preexistent status of um, of the son, um, along with his vicarious atoning death. Okay. Um, so, long story short, uh, you know, Ebionism is a denial of the divinity of Christ. Okay. That's what's seen as um, kind of as as it's the, the root problem that Orthodoxy has with Ebionism. Um, mm-hmm. According to the uh, Ebionites, Jesus was merely a man who brought no change in the covenantal administration. Right. He okay. becomes. Um, 
the moral example. And so the nature of salvation for them comes not by trusting in Christ, but by uh, keeping the law. And Jesus becomes the, the, the model example for what you're supposed to do and what it looks like to keep the law. Um, so he was yeah. the, uh, he was the, he was the example of the law, you know, the, the premier law keeper. Uh, but things like, was the administration in the Old Testament, was that in any way delivered by the son or no, that's just the father's work um, and as other things such as the resurrection that can be negotiated because the goal of what Jesus is doing was just being a law keeper. Right. Right. And, and is that, am I in the same ballpark there? Is that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, from my understanding of what Ebionism teaches according to, um, the writings of people like Hippolytus of Rome, who is not an Ebionite, um, he was actually a, a, an Orthodox believer, but he, in his book Against Heresies, he's writing, summarizing uh, what he thinks the uh, the nature of Ebionism is, and that seems to be. In fact, I have a, a quote that, um, if I could find it real quick, um, yeah, th- this is uh, what Hippolytus of Rome, and again, Hippolytus is writing in the third century, um, and this is what he says in kind of summarizing what the Ebionites believed. He said that they believe, and I quote, that the Savior was named the Christ. Because not one of the rest of mankind had completely observed the law. For even if any other had fulfilled the commandments in the law, he would have been the Christ. And thus the Ebionites allege that they themselves also, when in like manner they fulfill the law, are able to become Christ's. For they assert that our Lord himself was a man in a like sense with um, with all the rest of humanity. So... It, again, the, the major governing question of the first six centuries, what's the relationship of Jesus to the Father? They're expressing strict discontinuity between the Father and the Son, and that mm-hmm. Jesus um, is the perfect man, but really that. I mean, they'll see him as the greatest of all prophets, um, you know, the perfect law keeper, but at the end of the day, they see him as um, merely a man who becomes the the model example, like other prophets. Let's say Moses is a model in mm. in the Old Covenant ministry. They see Jesus really nothing more than that, yeah. um, which of course creates a whole host of problems for the nature of of, of salvation itself. Yeah. It undermines the uh, the the fundaments of the of the Christian faith, right? Yeah. Um, and so what we actually end up seeing is that that kind of core idea develops and kind of makes its way into non-Jewish Christian sects. Okay. Uh, and, and, um, and one, you know, again, this question of the relationship between Jesus and the Father, people want to affirm the full humanity of Christ, but only to the exclusion of his divinity. Um, what some other Christian, quote-unquote Christian, groups will end up saying is that Jesus, you know, and in, in, in this attempt to, to affirm the... Re- the um, the monotheism of Judaism, okay. you know, they will claim that Jesus is not God eternally, but some will end up claiming that he becomes adopted mm. as the son of God at his baptism mm. by virtue of his perfect law keeping up until that point in time. Mm. And so that ultimately comes to be known as adoptionism. So there are, there are uh, several Ebionites right. who will have this who will maintain this full adoptionist teaching where some will say that Jesus is adopted as baptism. Not all of the say that, mm. but adoptionism itself becomes this, this uh, teaching, this heretical teaching that Jesus becomes divine 
at his baptism where he's um, the Christ descends into the person of Jesus mm. um, and, and he's, he's filled with the spirit and is able to do these you know miraculous things right. that mm. that is the teaching so um, there, there is a distinction between adoptionism and Ebionism but at their core it's the same thing there's a denial of the etern- the, 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 the pre-existence, uh, pre-existence of the son uh, yeah um, where if some if some want to affirm the divinity, it's only it, it comes at a certain point in history. Mm. It's not eternally, you know, kind of uh, uh, an ontological fact of of Christ from eternity. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it has some similarities with another heresy that we'll probably talk about: uh, uh, Marconianism. Right. The oh yeah, uh, Marcionism is going to have affinities with um, Arianism. Uh, it's going to have affinities with Nestorianism and the way yeah. in which they try to play itself out. There, there's a lot of this is going to sound really, really familiar. I mean, honestly, <laughs> uh, there's actually this one. Uh, you know, if you're looking for a book to read, there's a really great book by a guy by the name of C. Fitzsimons Allison. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he was a conservative Episcopal bishop in South Carolina, and he wrote this book called The Cruelty of Heresy. Mm-hmm. And he makes the argument there are only real, fundamentally two heresies you need to know to understand the rest of everything that's going on in church history. Mm. Adoptionism is one that denies the divinity of Christ. Mm. The other is the one we're going to talk about next week is docetism, which denies the full humanity of Christ. Mm. Um, And it leads to two different things. If you deny the humanity of Christ, it automatically means that the nature of the law becomes something that you're obligated to keep Mm. in order to earn your salvation. Uh, And then in terms of uh, docetism, Mm -hmm. if you deny the uh, humanity of Christ, then the nature of salvation becomes escapist in uh, attempts to flee from suffering through, um, whether it be through esoteric knowledge or through any other sorts of things. Yeah. And that really presents a broad grid for how we think about the, yeah. the nature of false teachings. Now, as far as that connection to uh, uh, Mark, you call it Mar- Marsonian. Uh, Mar- uh, Marcionism, Marcin, after yeah. Marcion, this guy, right. uh, Rome. Uh, the um, it's that has a, a flavor of Old Testament belongs to God the Father, yeah. New Testament is more colored with the Son, and it, it yeah you'll see that nice. Gnosticism, Marcionism, yeah. uh, Docetism, Valentinianism. There's all these different isms that's going to have this radical disjunction between the Old and New Testament. Yeah. That's almost at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. Um, and what we're here is doing, seeing here today is people wanting to radical. Um, emphasize a radical continuity between the Old and New Testament, and it breaks down in dividing, you know, um, ripping apart the, the, the nature of uh, the person of Christ in terms of being mm. divine and human. That's, it just wants to affirm the, the humanity of Christ to the exclusion of his divinity yeah. and, and adoptionist and Ebionite. It's interesting because, uh, you know, talking about pre-existence and sometimes can get into the nature of ontology mm-hmm. and our God proper as what, what the, the attributes of the sun, what are those and how right. long have they been around and all that. But it has a direct effect upon continuity, discontinuity, hermeneutics mm-hmm. is it is the sun around right. when the law is being administered right. or when the, the proto evangelion is being administered. And so, right. That shifts and it will color your hermeneutic, however you interpret those texts. Mm-hmm. And so that doctrine of God and doctrine of Christ it will erratically affect hermeneutics and, and vice versa, as we see here in the first century. Now, tell me this. Um, 
how does this, as far as from a vantage point of history, how does adoptionism and, uh, and Ebionism, mm-hmm. how are they, how is it played out as far as history? What happens? Right. Well, what we're going to see is there's going to be t- two real major, um, cultural or intellectual think tank centers for Christianity, yeah. uh, in the East in, in the first six centuries, that of the, um, the Patriarchate of Antioch mm-hmm. and the Patriarchate of Alexandria. Alexander's okay. in Egypt, Antioch is in Syria. What we're going to see is that there are going to be tendencies that each school is going to exhibit, leaning in one direction or another. Antioch is actually where um, uh, adoptionism it kind of finds its initial root. Um, and so you're going to see a lot of times certain Christian thinkers, if they don't, not all of them will adopt an adoptionist. Uh, they won't adopt an adoptionist <laughs> viewpoint. Um, but there's always going to be the fear from other people that they're somehow crypto adoptionist or that they're mm. leaning in that direction. Um, Alexandria, there's going to be, is um, there's always going to be the fear of, among others that they're going to adopt uh, these Gnostic leaning mm. influences because of, of the, the influence of Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophy and this, these very dualistic notions that we'll talk about in the future. And so, um, both kind of again think tank centers are going to be mutually suspicious of one another. And that's going to play itself out in the nature of church politics, which mm. has an Im- important role, especially by the 4th century, uh, within the, the context of the Roman Empire. Mm. Um, I think they're going to balance each other out in some ways, in yeah. that when a certain um, Christological formulation develops in, let's say, Antioch, Alexandria is going to sit there and kind of reel it back in a little bit, but they might go too far, mm. and then Antioch will... And so it's it's in some ways they they operate as a good buffer, but there's there's just going to be those tensions in the same way that let's say in today, um, churches in the West might exhibit a more modalistic tendency to think about the Trinity. Mm. In the West, you're going to hear even in broader evangelicalism the Trinity being described as water, ice, and steam. Mm. That's, that's straight up heresy. Yeah. Um, and even though some people might say no, that that's wrong. I don't see that people tend to think that way, even if it's not. A flat-out embracing of heresy. There just ends to be there ends up being tendencies, and then in the East, sometimes there seems to be a tendency towards tritheism. Mm. Um, and so I think you know, looking about how the East and the West can kind of kind of ba- I don't want to say balance each other out as if there's just you know the middle path between them, but they're just in, in certain areas in Christianity and history and uh, in certain places there just ends up being tendencies in certain mm. places leaning in one direction or another. In Antioch. And so there's going to be an adoptionistic tendency. And um, so the uh, nature of salvation is going to end up kind of tending towards a more legalistic. Mm. Uh, it's going to have a more legalistic bent to it on you trying to like Paul of Samosota, uh, for example, he is uh, the patriarch of Antioch in the mid third century. He ends up claiming that union of union with God is achieved by self effort because, mm. because of this adoptionistic view of Christ, yeah. that Jesus becomes divine by nature of uh, fulfilling the law. Again, this idea among the adoptions is Jesus becomes the good moral example because he's just a human. Um, and so he's he's blessed with, you know, adopted into the divine by a result of his own self-effort, by doing these things. So that becomes the model for all of us. We're united to God by our own self-effort. And that becomes a, a pastoral cruelty. Yeah. Because then it just kind of throws the law back in your lap saying, okay, it's time to get to work. You've got to keep yeah. this in order to earn it. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's one of several problems that ends up developing with adoptionism. Mm. Um, 
and, and I mean, we see it even today. I'd say even in um, if your more liberal mainline churches want to be more consistent, mm-hmm. the claim that Jesus is a moral teacher, a good only a good moral teacher. That's the ultimate road it leads down to is that you have to be just like Jesus mm. in order to make it to heaven. Of course, these days to be just like Jesus just means you don't condemn people and you're real nice. Right. You're not a racist. And right. by the way, there's no such thing as hell. Yeah. So, Things like that. Yeah. It's a soft version of adoptionism as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Or at least there's um, the the same it's, – it, it's the same trajectory. Mm. Um but ultimately, again, like one of the things that's worth thinking about and, and thinking about these heresies that we talk about is this twofold problem, the doxological problem and the pastoral problem. Mm. And the doxological problem with adoptionism is that it fails to worship Christ as God. Mm. Um, and it's clear throughout the New Testament that Jesus is, is affirmed as being eternally preexistent. I mean, John 1 is, you know, I mean, it slits the throat of adoptionism, yeah. you know, right from the get-go. Uh, just let me read the first few verses of John 1. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So verse 1 of John 1 right away deals with the question of identity and distinction within the Godhead. Mm-hmm. How are you able to deal with that? And he goes, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, and then verse 14, you skip down, says, And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so right from the get-go, the first chapter of John addresses the fact that Christ preexisted his incarnation. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. Yeah. Um, adoptionism can't reckon with John 1, and so it has to reject it or do some crazy hermeneutical, uh, you know, gymnastics. Yeah, um, absolutely. We see that, you know, and it's scattered throughout, you know, all through the New Testament. It's not just John 1. First um, Corinthians, was it 8, 6? Um, it says, Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom all things are made and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's definitely a divine status being attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ mm. and a full humanity as well. Um, mm. And if you want to affirm one to the exclusion of the other, you're going to end up destroying the nature of salvation. I mean, that's the practical takeaway from all this is if you deny the divinity or if you deny the humanity of Christ, you've undermined your salvation. You have no way of being reconciled to God. Mm. And I wonder if when they denied the Pauline epistles, um, is it because, I mean, I imagine they probably lumped Hebrews in with maybe the, the Pauline epistles, but maybe not, but that Hebrews 1, it's a quotation of an Old Testament text, mm-hmm. and it's about the Son. Yeah. You know, but of the Son, he says. Right. And so it's like, well, did the Old Testament change its meaning right. into the New Testament? Because uh, basically when it was deli- that psalm was delivered, mm-hmm. it's like, well, we have no idea what he's talking about because the Son hasn't arrived. Right. Or it's pre-existent son of which of the you know who did he say to the angels yeah but of the son he says so that uh, i wonder if that such text about jesus christ being pre-existent right um is one reason for the you know a uh, hacking way of a lot of the canon yeah that that's a potential you know that might be a good thesis I think it's a, it's a valid argument. I mean, we can only speculate as to why they would reject parts of the canon, but mm. it, that the parts that they reject clearly doesn't gel with 
biblical revelation as a whole. Yeah. And that biblical revelation affirms the full humanity and the full deity of, of the son. Mm. Um, and I mean, really the bulk of the um, conversations we're going to have for the next, what, like 25 more episodes is that very thing. I mean, if, if y'all are bored now and you want to stop listening, <laughs> just know, you know, what's the relationship of Jesus to the father, Jesus, the eternally begotten son of God and Jesus at his incarnation, fully God, takes on human flesh and he retains his fully divine status yet is also fully man that that becomes you know you know solidified as accepted orthodoxy in mm. 451 at the council of chalcedon basically all we're doing is we're working our way you know we're taking a road there. trip to 451 and right. seeing how the church comes to that kind of short <laughs> succinct definition there's a lot of ink that gets shed and mm. spilt um, for the church to come to that succinct summary of kind of summarizing um, the nature mm. of, of, of redemptive history as it uh, reaches its fullest expression in the incarnation. Not to go off on a tangent, but there's also that strange passage from Paul, and I think somebody should do uh, a systematic theology paper on it. So I think it's Galatians three twenty one, where it's the law was administered through and by angels. Uh or by a mediator um, through angels. But a mediator implies more than one, but God is one. <laughs> so it's like, clearly, the mediator is not angels. Yeah. So who's mediating it? Like, who would have, right. who would make the mistake Yeah. of like, oh, all the angels are God? Yeah. It's like, no, that, you know, Paul's not correcting that. There is somebody who's mediating the law yeah. that is also God. And you would think, well, wait a second, a mediator implies more than one, yeah. but God is one. Yeah. So it's almost like a small, simple Trinitarian, yeah, we have uh, th- you know, the mediator delivering the law, and he is God, but God is one. Yeah. And it's strangely like that passage in Jude where it's Jesus who leads the people out of Egypt. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you're thinking putting these texts together, that's a, a tangent about, um, you know, the preexistence of the son. But back on topic, yeah. uh, where, what happens with, the, do these heresies begin to flourish a little bit and then get put down? Or what happens in the immediate history? Uh, Ebionism, <clears throat> it dies out. I mean, very early on. I mean, I, I, I don't know of any examples of Ebionism beyond, let's say, the late second, early third century. I think even Hippolytus of Rome, when he's writing about them in the mid third century, is just like, yeah, this is what they believed. Um, but it's like, it's yeah. old hat. Yeah. Um, it's like a put down. It's like, that's like, yeah, well, there, there is definitely adoptionist tendencies that emerged by the third century. And so I, Hippolytus might've been writing about that talking about, you know, I, it's been a while since I've read Hippolytus, but I, I, I think, you know, you haven't picked up your Hippolytus for your daily devotions. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I've, I've not asked Hippolytus into my heart recently. Um, but he, in his book Against Heresies, I, if I remember correctly, I think he's trying to talk about the, the roots of adoptionism, trying to, to locate it in the Ebionite sect. I could be wrong mm. about that, but there are definite affinities if, you know, if there's not strict, you know, historical continuity. Adoptionism does emerge again, I think, in the seventh and eighth century in Spain, um, and then in the 14th century, but it kind of, it, it flitters and flutters. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know too much about Mormonism, but my understanding is that Mormonism might have something somewhat similar about, you know, Jesus being adopted. Mm. Um, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. I, yeah. I haven't really, you know, 
in what spare readings I have, I don't really care about reading about Mormon theology that much. Yeah. Just well, that was you know, it's written by a 19th century racist. That's all you really need to know. And just <laughs> yeah, you know, well, that, wasn't that what Joseph Smith said when everybody asked him about the Book of Mormon? He's like, "Well, don't quote me on it. Don't but quote me on it. But this is what was said." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, okay. Uh, um, how about uh, anything else? A and B, uh, give us a segue into uh, the next episode. Okay. Yeah, well, just in closing, the question is, you know, if, if you're – there might be some crazy church that's in your hometown and you're listening where they're like, oh, that sounds like what the crazy church down the street's teaching. And you know, what, what biblical recourse do I have for kind of combating adoptionism? Adoptionism might not be as popular in the U.S. as docetism is going to be. I think docetism is mm-hmm. a big – especially with the, uh, the prosperity gospel. That's basically docetism in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but adoptionism, you know, if, you, if you're concerned with, you know – how can we reject it to be faithful to Scripture? Read John 1. John mm-hmm. 1, I mean, again, it. it um, I think that nips it in the bud. Also, Galatians, the whole letter of Galatians deals with, you know, um, for example, Galatians 5, 4, Paul says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So he's not saying that adoptionism is a um, an acceptable variant of Christianity. Right. It is, for as far as he's concerned, according to Galatians 1, it is another gospel, mm. and therefore no gospel at all. It's no mm. gospel. It can't be good news if it's telling you that your salvation is contingent upon your own you know, puny self-effort and good works. Yeah. You know, I, I think that in some ways, adoptionism, with its emphasis on the law, still has too low of a view of the law because it assumes that you're able to keep it. Mm. I, and I think that's one of the things that's so ironic about Ebionism is that they, they had accepted the Gospel of Matthew as canon, yet Matthew 5 is very clear in Jesus' discussion on the law that, oh yeah, you say, you know, the law says don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, you look on somebody with lust in your heart and you're an adulterer. Right. That sets the stakes really high because you're not just uh, concerned with outward actions, but the that of the heart. Yeah. Uh, you find out that your heart does not measure up no matter how hard you're going to try to convince everybody else. And yeah, so, the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount is to, you know, Jesus saying, in summary, you must be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck good with luck your with salvation. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. the good news of adoptionism. You have to be perfect. <laughs> so start running that, you know, that treadmill. Yeah. Be that hamster on, you know, the little spinny wheel thing. Yeah. Because that's that's gonna be the life of the person who embraces an adoptionist viewpoint. Right. Well, how perfect? As perfect as the Heavenly Father. Yeah. Has never sinned, will never sin, has never thought about sinning. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. Um, next, we're going to look at the other major heresy and that we see actually uh, as the second half of the first century. You even see it in First John. John's writing to combat, combat this heresy, or at least an early form of it known as docetism. Mm. Whereas if Ebionism and Adoptionism deny the full uh, divinity of Christ, mm. uh, docetism is going, to dev- is going to deny the uh, full humanity of Christ. Mm. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of tease out and flesh out uh, the implications of, of that heresy next time. Well, great. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, once again, uh, this was and is and will be Faith of Our Fathers. I'm Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. Have a good day or night or whenever you listen to this. <laughs>